It's good to be here in Elk River. We were here a couple Sundays ago for Pastor Joel Nelson's last Sunday, and that was really special for me. He led a missions trip that I went on in high school, between my junior and senior year in high school, in, from Fremont, Nebraska, actually, um, to Reynosa, Reynosa, Mexico. And it was my first experience being in a total kind of cross-cultural setting. And so it was cool to see him again, and, and just interesting how God uh, brings things full circle, crosses our paths, he knows things we don't know, and he likes to show us and teach us. And uh, one thing I want to share, just as a preface before I talk, a lot of people hear all the countries I've lived in, and wow, I lived in Asia for about 20 years, and that's fa fantastic, and that's amazing, and um, it is fantastic, and it's been quite the adventure that I've been on. But I want to just dispel any maybe uh, kind of this missionary mystery. Sometimes we think missionaries are super Christians, and there's Really no such thing as a super Christian. There's only one super hero. Jesus is awesome. And I, I'm really nothing. He does everything. Um, God's had me camped out in Psalm 40 for the last probably three or four weeks. It's not that big a psalm. It hasn't taken me that long to read it. I just mean when I go back to read, I just keep reading it. And it's been a life psalm for me. It starts and says, I waited patiently for the Lord. And he turned to me and heard my cry. He reached down and he lifted me out of the miry pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new hymn in my mouth, a song in my mouth, a hymn of praise. <coughs> and the psalm is about a man in desperation, uh, King David, who also is anticipating God's further deliverance. But how God lifted him out of the mud and the mire. And I can testify that I've been in places in life where I got to the point where I couldn't do it anymore. Even as a missionary, it was overseas, and I was like, I, God, I can't. Is that me? Yep, that's me. Um, let's pray over this thing. Here we go. I screwed it in. Is that? I think we're good now. My man. Jeremy's the man. Oh, yep. Now I'm off. Okay, we're good? Okay. That actually makes me feel right at home in Asia. That happens every time we do anything. Things break a lot in Asia, so. Um, uh, but God lifted me out, and uh, that happens. Not, it's not a one-time deal in life when you follow God. You get to the point often where you're like, God, I can't do this. And daily, um, my thoughts, or whether it's, you know, the things of life, humanity, impatience, anger, resentment, whatever it is, and and I constantly are going, I'm going back to Jesus. And Jesus is the most gracious person I've ever met. And he lifts me out constantly, over and over. And so I'm very thankful for him. So um, if that's all you hear this morning, take that and run with it. That's, that's really the message. Um, uh, but I am, I am thankful to, to be here and literally be here as well. Uh, God has been very good and gracious to me. I'm, I'm one of those people who I'm of average intelligence, I'll say. I'm not going to win any Nobel Peace Prize or Nobel Prize for academics or anything like that. And I'm a bit of a slow processor. I take time to kind of mull over things. I'm actually introverted by nature. So uh, speaking in front of people, is that's another Jesus thing he's done in my life. But I like to think things through and, and in, be introspective and stuff. But I'm, I'm also, I have a lot, of, a lot of energy. And I'm kind of an adrenaline junkie. always have in my whole life. And that's a really bad combination when you get someone who's, not super smart, but has a lot of energy and likes, likes to go fast and jump off high things. And God bless you praying moms out there. 
wow, Mother's Day should be like 200 days of the year because uh, like mom's worst thing they ever want to hear, right, is don't worry, mom, I got this. You know, as you're leaving the door, my mom hurt that a lot. God bless you, mom. Thanks for praying for me. But I've had a lot of uh, brush-ins with uh, dangerous situations, you know, just doing stupid things. Um, in Asia, you never know, motorcycles. I had an elephant. It's a long story, but that was, that was a deal. It actually, look back on that one like, wow, God, you saved me there. So um, God's been very graceful to me. So I'm thankful to actually be here standing before you, and I want to give him praise. My journey into missions started as a, as a little guy. I was probably first grade, lived in a town called Blairsburg, Iowa. And uh, my dad was big on missions, and we had these mission conferences in our churches. And, I mean, the, I think the church is bigger than the town, actually. The town's less than 300 people. And things would swell for missions conference. And we'd get to hear people in this little town in Iowa from all over the world come. And uh, Uncle Roy Solvig was a missionary to Africa. And he would come, and he'd stay in our house, and he'd play with us. And we, we called him the hungry hippo from Africa, and he'd wrestle us. And that sounds scary now, but as a kid, it was fun. Um, but he, would, he had these great stories of being a missionary in Africa and living in the jungles and how God was speaking to people. And I thought, that's it. That's what I want to do. That sounds awesome. That's an adventure. Why wouldn't I want to do that? And so God started to plant these seeds in my heart for missions. And as I grew up and went, went through life, we moved on. And uh, I had a I would, pretty normal Midwest uh, childhood. I went to high school in Nebraska. The Midwest culture kind of is in my blood. I love farms. My summer job was detasseling corn. And if you've never detasseled corn, I mean, I don't know, maybe you're not really missing anything. But um, it's good preparation for just uh, anything, really. You get up at 5 in the morning and you go pull the tassels out of corn. It's kind of what it sounds like. But um, I love Nebraska. I love farm culture. I love the Midwest. Um, came to college at Crown, to Crown College in Minnesota in 1994. Had a great experience in Crown. Um, that's when Minnesota became home for me. And we've kind of been coming back for the last 25 years. Uh, love Minnesota. It's always good to come back after being in Southeast Asia where it's, it's just, it's different. Um, my first opportunity to live overseas came right after school. My uh, family got a call from a friend who works in Korea at an international Christian school there. And uh, I can remember getting that phone call and I thought, well, maybe he's joking. And I was like, well, maybe not. So I wrote this note because back when you had these, you know, the answering machine. So I wrote this note to my wife, you know, Kayla. You know, Uncle Tom called, and he talked about this opportunity to go to Korea and work. I think he's serious, question mark, exclamation mark, question mark. And uh, we started talking about that and praying about it, and then we're like, well, let's do it. Let's go. And again, I'm the kind of person who jumps in, and then on my way down, it's like, whoa, what's happening? Where am I going to land? And so I was just ready to go to Korea. I had no idea. I, ne you know, never been to that part of, of the world in Asia. Um, didn't know anything about Korea. I was surprised to get there and realize it's very urban. I, mean, I don't know what I was thinking, green fields, people drinking tea. I had, I had no clue. Um, again, not, not the brightest person in the world, but lots of energy, ready to go. And uh, so I showed up in Korea, and it was a great experience. God, the culture shock is real, okay? When you show up and you don't look like anyone else and you can't speak the language, you never really learn Korean because uh, the international school is in English. And so that's a, actually a plus. And let me put in just a little plug here for overseas missions. Missions looks way different than when I was growing up. I heard these stories growing up of people way in the back, uh, back in the past, um, you know, in the 1800s, packing their coffins and going on these boats, and that was for life. And, uh, and they were going to teach the Bible, and that was their skill, and they had to do all these other things to live. But missions looks very different. No one, no one packs their coffin anymore. People are like, what if you do that? So don't, 
anyway. Um, but whatever your skill is, God can use it overseas. My first job as a missionary was working at a school. Uh, my wife's a second grade teacher. She's amazing. God's used her all over the world. Um, there's a lady I worked with in Laos who teaches English, and she's 70 now. And she's te- she taught at the, the local bank. They had an English program. She taught in the school we worked in. Right now she's teaching in a, a pilot aviation program for Lao pilots who don't know English very well, and they have to learn all the, the terms for uh, aviation. And it's just amazing the places God's used her. And while she's there, she's also working in a prison. It's just, it's just cool the, the opportunities God can open up. So whatever your skill is, whatever you do, if you're a farmer, you do agriculture, wow. Man, people need to know methods overseas. You're in accounting or finance or clerical work, uh, education, any kind of medical. I mean, it doesn't matter. Whatever you do, retail, business, God can use it overseas. There's huge needs. Um, so if you're open and, and he, uh, he shows you the path, that's, that's an adventure that you could take. But um, I, I loved working in Korea, loved discipling students, kind of just getting my feet wet in missions, learning to live cross-culturally. Uh, it was a bit of a, a trick. One thing about language has always been difficult for me. Uh, many times I've asked God, like, wow, why did you pick me? Because learning languages is hard. Uh, our first two daughters were born in Korea. It was kind of strange. They were born in a clinic that had a reputable, uh, a good reputation. It was, it was above this, I guess it was a bar. It's kind of a, a Korean, like, drinking house, which is a little strange for me, but great doctor. And uh, our first one, we had a translator when, when Kaleo was born, and she was a missionary who'd been in Korea many times uh, for many years, and she helped us translate. And uh, our second one, I thought, okay, I've done this, had, had children in Korea before, I got this. It's like a thing, if you hear my wife, she hears me say, I got this. She always, like, raises her eyebrows now. That's the thing you should know. And so during our second one, uh, my poor wife, she always wanted to get an epidural. She's heard of this, this magic thing that you can have when you're delivery called an epidural. It's like they give you this shot, and you don't feel as much pain. I'm like, that's good, honey. Less pain is good. You know, why wouldn't everyone do that? Let's do that. So it wasn't available in Korea for the first child. Second one, she'd heard she can get an epidural, and so she was so excited. But um, as the process went along, whatever, uh, there's no, it wasn't ready or something. I don't know. Again, my, my Korean language is bad. And uh, so I, once she's like, I need this thing. Like, go, go talk to the nurse. You get me that epidural. So I ran out to this, this Korean nurse who was trying to speak English. Praise God for it. It's awesome. She's trying to help us. And I'm like, hey, can we get that, that shot? You know, can you? And she's like, oh, cannot. Showtime, showtime. I'm like, showtime, showtime. It's show, okay, showtime. So I run back in. I'm like, Kayla, we can't get this shot because it's showtime. Like, and she's like, what the heck are you talking about? You go give me that shot. So I go out there. I'm like, one job, get this shot. Go back out there. I'm like, can we, can we get that shot? And she's like, no, showtime, showtime. I'm like, oh, it's a short time. Like, it's so short we can't get it. It's too close. Oh, okay. So I go back in. I'm like, hey, not only is it showtime, it's also a short time until the baby's coming. And uh, that's become a family joke. She never did get the shot. Even the third one. Um, praise God, we were able to have our last child in Waconia, Minnesota. Kayla was so happy. It's just the most beautiful experience ever. You know, it's like a hotel. When they asked her, they're like, do you want to go home or do you like to stay? I think her answer was like, I, can I stay as long as possible? <laughs> it's so great. They're like, they take the baby, get to sleep. It's awesome. Um, but, yeah, I learned, I learned that things in Asia, things in Korea, just like Minnesota, but totally different. Like, you know, absolutely the... The opposite. Um, and as, as God was working in my heart, a lot of these stories actually is what he was doing in me. You know, not always through me. And I'll, I'll get to, I'm going to tell you a few stories, but at the end I have some application points. 
Um, but what God was doing in me was giving me eyes to see the world differently. And someone has said that Asia is rice and religion. Meaning, you know, the rice culture is so huge because not only is it a subsistence farming thing, and rice was everything to people in Asia. Um, now you can get it in stores, you don't have to. But they used to do it communally in a lot of countries like Laos. They make it, it's a community effort to get this rice and store it. And it's such a big part of life. But it also represents the relational aspect of life, that we eat together. And we do that as Americans too, you know. We, eating together is a very special thing, having food. So they're very relational. More important than getting a task done even in most of the countries I've lived in is the relationships. So if you're waiting in line for 20 minutes, that's, that's okay as long as you're getting along with everybody. But if you get angry or show, you know, that you're frustrated, whoa, that's, then everyone's get upset. And okay, okay, see, so it's like this whole thing of learning to see the world differently through relationships. And then religion's important. Uh, I thought I was a spiritual person as a Christian, but then I went overseas and realized that most of the countries live in Asia. They're very spiritual people. In other words, they are just cognizant all the time of the spiritual world we live in. In the Philippines, down near the bottom of my, we had a little sort of subdivision, I guess you'd call it, there was a, a squatter village. I was pretty big, actually, and I was hanging out, talking with some kids one night, and I said, hey, can you take me through your village? Uh, can, we, can, we, can you show me, like, what's down there? And the closest path was by these big trees, and I was like, can we go? And they said, uh, yeah, but we have to go this way. And it was towards evening, and I said, well, can we go down the path? And they said, no, you can't go down the path, because that's, those trees, that's where the spirits live. We can't go by them at night. I was like, okay, so we'll go this way, you know. It's just this thing of like they're constantly aware that there's spiritual presences, spiritual places. Um, in, uh, in Laos, came, came back one day, and in Laos and, and most parts of Southeast Asia, people have some spirit house or altar just on their property. So in Laos, it's usually a spirit house that stands up and has a little, like a little mini temple made out of cement, painted, and they put incense sticks or sometimes pop or oranges or rice on there. And it is for spiritual realities. Fathers, mothers, they believe people have passed away that may need this. It represents the spiritual protection, but they also don't know is it benevolent or malevolent. Will the spirits help me or not? We came home one day and there's a string all the way around our, our not compound, but the, our neighbors were all family and they had the string going around the whole thing. And I knew exactly what that meant. They use these strings that the monks have blessed um, or that have been used in ceremony. Sometimes they'll tie them on their, on their wrist, and that is a spiritual protection. And so they were putting this around our whole courtyard so that we'd be spiritually protected because great-grandmother had died had passed away. And I never could quite get an understanding, is it, is it great-grandma who's going to come back and haunt us or something? Or is it other spirits? Like, death is very tricky for, for people in Laos. Like, what's going to happen? And, and so this was supposed to protect us. Um, in, uh, in Malaysia, where we live now, uh, there's a huge festival, probably one of the, the bigger ones, outside of Chinese New Year, but it's called the Hungry Ghost Festival. And it happens when we get back, I think, in um, August or September. But they believe that the gates of hell actually open up, and then spirits come back, maybe like a Day of the Dead um, in Latin American tradition. But, and so people will, again, put out food, go to the... Uh, the grave sites, they'll, build, they'll burn these huge um, incense sticks, big poles right outside our, our houses and by the markets. And they'll burn money. That's kind of an interesting thing, all this Monopoly money flying around. Big piles of it. And it looks like money. It's not money. It's just paper. But it looks like money, and they'll burn it. And if you ask people, they'll say, oh, we're burning this to send it back with the spirits, our ancestors, when they go back into the, the afterlife. 
It's a very strange reality. I had to think about that and go, wait, as a Christian, what's, what's true? Do I believe in spirits? Are there spirits? Are there demons? Are there angels? Does God's spirit inhabit me and give me wisdom? Yes. Who's the most powerful spirit? Who's Lord, or, Lord over all the spirits? Where is authority? Where is power, really? It's in the name of Jesus. And so God was shaping me during my time in Korea and then my time through Laos. We went to Laos in 2009. And for me, that was like the dream. I'd always wanted to, you know, live in the village, go to the jungle. And so when we got to Laos, I thought, this is it. We're going to live in the village. I, I probably should communicate it a little better with my wife. I'm not, I'm not sure she was totally on board with village life. She likes Wi-Fi. Um, she likes things that are developed. And, uh, but, but I was ready. We're like, we're going to do this thing and, uh, with all our kids and stuff. And uh, about a, a year and a half in, we were at a retreat, and I was running in the woods. And I was actually kind of frustrated because we'd been stuck in the, in the capital city. Uh, things had changed on our field. The, team, you know, the plan changed. You know, you've been in, in jobs where you think you're getting into one thing, and something is just a little different. And I didn't quite know how to handle that. And so I was kind of running some of those frustrated prayers, you know, those frustrated psalms where David's like, why God? And, and, uh, and God stopped me in my tracks. I'll never forget the spot. It was just, I was running along, and I just, God's spirit stopped me. And he said, that's not for you. And I knew exactly what he's talking about. My dream of living in the village, living in a, and you think, well, that's a great dream. Why, why wouldn't God do that? And I had to wrestle with him for a while. And I said, okay, God, you can take it. I don't know what to do with that. I can't just give it up. That's all I've had for 35 years. That's all I've wanted to do, go to the village. But God said, that's not for you. And at that moment, I was, I'll, I'll be honest, a bit crushed. I, I, I didn't know what else I had in life. Um, God showed me later that that was actually too much of my identity. My reality and who I was was built on this dream that I was going to go save these village people. Um, even though people would come to Christ and do all this, but I, that, that wasn't who I was. Jesus is the one who accomplishes his purpose. Uh, he didn't need me to go to the village. And so I, I had to wrestle through that. And actually, as I, as I did that, God uh, began helping me work through some of these questions I had in life. One of my big questions was, God, why am I here? Because this doesn't, this doesn't really fit all the time in Southeast Asia. I'm usually a little taller, a little blonder. I stick out a lot, and I'm an introvert, man. Like, I really don't like attention, believe it or not. Uh, so I can remember riding the subway in Seoul and being able to see over everyone's head. And it's like, you know, just all, all black hair. And, here, and, I, and all of a sudden you realize, like, whoa, I must stick out because you can't see yourself. You know, you don't, um, but you see in a mirror or something like, or see people look at you like, oh. And I don't like being a foreigner. Um, I like to fit in. I like to be part of the group, I like, you know. And so there have been times I'm like, God, why am I here? And I'm introverted, and I'm not very good at language. Six years in Laos, excruciating, embarrassing myself every day, you know. Um, some people love that stuff. But God changed that question from, from being a self-centered question of why am I here to, okay, Father, what, what, what do you see here? What's going on in, in this situation? What are you doing here? And I, and I want to leave you kind of with these two principles that, that just lately have been important to me, God's kind of bringing home in my life. And one is the idea of uh, stations, our station in life, um, meaning everything about who I am and what I do and, and where I'm at, all that I would say is just our station. What is my station in life? What is God doing in my certain station? I'm starting to ask the question, Father, what do you see here? 
in this station that I'm in. Like right now, I've been in Malaysia for four years. I'm a spiritual life director at a school. I work mostly with high school students. Love them. You know, I coach and teach and mentor and uh, sponsor class parties. God, what do you see when I go to sponsor a class party, when I'm coaching basketball, when I'm teaching this Bible class for freshmen? What do you see here, Father? And I started thinking about the people in the Bible. I uh, pick a guy like David. David's in training, right? And we're always in training. Like when I learn about stations, you're always in training. That's, that's a given. God is doing something in you, through you. He will train us. That's what God does. Never is there a time when we're not in training. Sometimes we feel like, oh, I've got this. You know those times when like, you sit back and like, life is good. I just won't stay right here. I'll stay right here. God, this is, this is good. And it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. And we don't, want, we don't want that. Really, the worst thing that can happen is God give us exactly what we want. We start to feel comfortable and we got this. And so we're always in training. But I, I guess I'd like to use these terms waiting and then ministry. Uh, and they go together. But sometimes we're very aware that we're waiting. Okay? When I was in Laos, I was like, man, God, I don't feel like I'm doing it. I'm, what's happening? And then sometimes we can really see what God's doing. Now, Oswald Chambers, I like how he puts it. He talks about work and rest and ministry. Um, sorry, worship. Work, rest, worship. And he says, when we're working... We're also worshiping. We're always worshiping. But in our work, we are conscious that we're resting as well, that God has completed the work. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. So we're working, but we're also resting. But then there's times when we need to rest, and we take a Sabbath. But in those times of rest, we understand God is working. So that's why we can rest, but we're still worshiping. So those three kind of all go together. Um, and so we have these stations, and I know this is kind of cognitive, but I'll, I'll, I'll bring it back here. Um, there's times of these, this training, and I look at people in the Bible, so I pick a guy like David, <coughs> who was anointed very young. Was he in training? Yeah, for a long time. Did he wait? Yeah, man, he waited for a long time. A little shepherd boy, okay, some of you who are in middle school, he's your age. He's out there fighting off wolves and bears and stuff. Spent a lot of time just sitting, uh, looking around, but what's he doing? I guess he's a harp player, maybe practice. Some of you guys don't like to practice your instrument. Okay, David, had, he practiced out there, a little music. And, uh, and he's, he's developing his worship core. I, I would like to think that some of the psalms he wrote later in life were songs that he had written when he was young, out there in the field. And that he took it out. You know, when he says that Psalm 23, the Lord's my shepherd, he talks about quiet waters, green pastures. Man, little guy out there playing his harp or just worshiping before God. God was developing his worship core. He was in training, and he was waiting for the time when he'd be king. Boom, then he's there. And then even in that time, it's not like he arrived and then he's good. God still has him in these times of waiting and ministry. Um, Ruth, wow, Ruth and Naomi, that's a, that's a killer story. Wow, incredible. Uh, starts out pretty rough. People are dying. Naomi loses her husband and then her sons. And they're kind of lost. And they go back to the homeland. And she's living off of the, the, the fruit of the harvest from Boaz's field. That'd be a tough place to be. I'm... And even when you read, read the story, Naomi's not all happy, happy, you know, joy, joy. It's, it's rough stuff. When we lose people, it hurts. And that's okay. God knows that. But she's in a time of waiting. She's in a time of training. What's God, do, what's God doing in her life? Developing that faith. And then, you know, the story's incredible how Boaz and uh, Ruth get married. And, and she becomes, Naomi then, becomes heir to King David and ultimately to Jesus. That's incredible. Esther. She thinks she's just going to this beauty pageant and she's getting married. But what is God doing in that training time, that waiting time, developing her so that when it's time for ministry, when it's time to save her nation, her people, 
she does that, and that's what she fulfills. Uh, Joseph is a story that's been really strong on my heart. When I was in Laos, I was running one day, and it was during this period where it's like, God, why am I here? What's going on? And um, things happen when I run, I guess. That's when I have my space. If any of you guys are runners, you understand. Probably about three of you guys. The rest of you are like, why, why do you do that? Why do you run? Why do people sweat? Why are they doing that out there? That's so stupid. Um, but I like to run. And so I clear my head. So I'm out running one day, and uh, I was kind of praying through some things, kind of frustrated. And, and God said to me, God's spirit, again, God's voice sounds like our voice. If you heard his spirit in your thoughts, you know what that sounds like. Um, if it's cynical or critical, that's not of the Lord. But uh, God stopped me and he says, don't get bogged down by your vision. And he brought this story of Joseph in my thoughts. I started seeing it when Joseph was in that pit or that well. I saw the walls of that, that well. The first thing I was kind of startled. I was like, well, I didn't know God used words like bogged. Um, don't get bogged down. Um, then I started thinking about it. I'm like, wow, yeah, we do get bogged down by what we see. All I can see around me right now in this position I'm in is, well, God, why am I here? This doesn't make any sense. Like, everything's falling apart. Uh, but then I went to church that Sunday. I'm not kidding you. And the preacher's like, okay, we're going to open our Bibles to Genesis 39, verse 40. We're going to talk about the story of Joseph. I'm like, what? No way. And then we have friends that come visit us from Korea we used to work with. And this guy, I didn't ask about anything. He starts talking about Joseph. Hey, you know, the story about Joseph. I'm like, okay, God knows I need to hear a lot. A lot. Um, and this, I started reading it, reading through the story of Joseph, realizing the training that guy was in. Now, he had sort of been anointed when he was younger. He had uh, these visions, powerful but he was cocky, he was, he was too proud, and he was, didn't have a social skill, didn't have the administrative qualities he needed. So God thought his training would be best as a slave. And then, if it couldn't get worse, in prison, but in each of those places, there's favor. And what's crazy about that story is you turn the page, right? We're reading Joseph, like, oh, that's nice, oh, and it's, ah, it, it happens pretty quick. But when you look at the timeline, it was years. Uh, he wasn't in prison for a few weeks. Like, he was in slavery in prison for years much longer than I would probably last. I, mean, I was only in Laos for six years, but this guy. Um, but then God elevates him. With Joseph, his, uh, his royalty preceded his position, right? So God was going to put him in this position, but he, he was training him. But he was already royalty. He couldn't see it. He couldn't feel it. I think that's how we are sometimes. In those times of training, we have to realize you know, we're called by God. We're sons and daughters. We are his royal heirs. And we're waiting for that time when, when he will use us in the way he sees, he's ready to use us. He's building our character. For me, that was what God was doing when I was in Laos. He was giving me a heart for discipleship. I love studying the Bible and teaching the Bible. And uh, this is humorous. I've never taken an education class. I've never taken a language class on how to teach language. or um, I've never taken a business class, education, language, business. And the role that got vacated that I was placed in in Laos was uh, being the director of a language school that was a business. That's funny stuff. Um, I didn't know language, I didn't know business, I didn't know education, and I was the director of a language school. It was an education business. Um, but I thought, okay, God, what can I do here? This is the station I'm in. What do you see? And I realized that all my Lao staff, so I had Lao national staff, usually in their, their mid-20s, a lot of them had this, had this view that in, in the Lao church, and they were Christians as well, most of them, they had this view that, well, the pastor does this work. The pastor knows these things. We don't. And so I started to challenge them on that. I'd be like, well, 
does God speak to us? Does he use us, even if we're not a pastor? And so we started having these Bible studies once a week. Very simple thing. We'd have lunch, have a Bible study, have little groups, pray together, and we'd all eat together. Um, but week after week, month after month, that started to, you could see the difference in some of my staff. And they're like, hey, I feel like this says this. You know, I heard this at church, but I think God really, when you look at what it says, God's saying this. I'm like, wow, that's great. Uh, the other thing that, that God just gave me a heart for, and I, I could see it start to grow in our staff, was for missions, for them. For them to say, well, should we reach out? Because of you, that once you've arrived, once you've gotten out of the village, made it to the big city, and you have a job, you never go back. And I said, well, what, what if we went back to the village? And my best friend, Kam, his family lived up in the village, in a little, little town in Siengkwang, Laos. You're never going to see that on a map, but it's 12 hours north of the capital city. And so it started with me and some buddies getting on motorcycles and just riding up there to visit his family. Um, and it's kind of cool because God gave me that dream of working in the village in just a different way, in a better way when I was ready for it. And so we'd go up there and visit. And then we found out they had a little local school, this little cement building. And so we said, come, why don't you talk to your father-in-law and see if we can come up with some of our staff and we'll put on like a little camp for them. And so they said yes. And the village headman was like, that's awesome. Uh, I don't think he said that's awesome, but whatever he said, he's like, that's a great idea. And so we, we took our staff up, and we did this, I think, three or four times. So our Lao national staff from the city, we all went up to the village, and we like slept on the floor, and we put on this little, think of it like a VBS almost kind of thing, um, like little day camps for these kids. And man, there was a really cool connection with the people in the village. And we got to encourage them and support them. And Kam's family in the village came to know Jesus. That's a whole story for another time. But that was incredible. Uh, and so they started to develop a heart for missions. Now, those are little things. I mean, in the kingdom, those are big things. But those aren't the things that, like, you write books about. Or it wasn't, like, hundreds of people. But I'm still praying for that region. Because I believe that those little seeds of the gospel, God's going to use those. And I've been praying that God will spread his light through all the mountains uh, to the different other villages there in Laos. The one, of the, one of the young guys, Bo, he was probably 20, and he was just starting his career, but he started as an accountant at our school. And when we were up in the village, we were walking down the road one day, and he said, wow, he goes, my life is so different. He goes, I didn't used to do anything or go anywhere. It's very boring. He goes, but then I met Jesus, and now I do all kinds of adventurous things. It was pretty cool. Um, so what station, what station are you at in life? God was training me in Laos. He was training me for the ministry that I'm doing at Delat now, uh, and and. And working on my character so that when success comes, right, it didn't just go to our head. That we're ready for what he needs us to do. So stations is one idea. And the other concept I want to give you is just is tools. Um, by that, I mean what has God given you? Not just your education, but your experiences, who you are, what you're like, what, you, what you've done. Uh, the things you can see just because of your personality and your character. And the idea, I got this idea from uh, Pastor King in, even at the Evangelical Church in Bangkok. That's a lot to say. Uh, but he talked, he talked about this a few months ago with me, and um, it's just one of those concepts that's been burning in my heart. He told the story of Moses, and you know, Moses is so great. I love this guy because he packs like a whole lifetime worth of self-doubt into one conversation with God. Like for me, it's take 40 years to like, God, I don't know if I can do that. Should I go there? I don't know. God, I don't know. This is my, my personality. I'm like this. I don't know if you can use me. Or God, I don't know. That's kind of scary. I don't know if I want to do that. And God's like, nudge, nudge. Well, this takes, takes most of us a lifetime to get through these questions. Moses, boom, man, he just hits it all in one conversation. He sees this burning bush, <coughs> and God tells him what he's going to do. By the way, Moses, why don't you go to Egypt? Whoa, I'm not going back there, God. I have a good life here. 
I'm paraphrasing, have my sheep, I have my wife and my kids. No, Moses, you're going to go back and you're going to tell Pharaoh that we need to go. God, I'm not a, very, not a very good speaker. You know, it's just on and on. Moses is like this guy that's just, he's got all this skill and I just, this big ball of potential. God sees it. He can't see it. And God finally tells him the whole plan. Not exactly how he's going to do it, but he tells him what's going to happen. You're going to plunder Egypt. They're going to give you their earrings and give you your gold. You're going to walk out of Egypt with all this stuff. It's going to be great, Moses. And he's like, the next chapter uh, starts with Moses like, well, but what if I go and they don't believe that I've actually talked to you, God? They don't believe that <laughs> who you are. So awesome. I love Moses. Um, and then God asks him this question. Moses, what's, what's that in your hand? And Moses is a shepherd, right? And that's it's not a special thing. He's got a stick in his hand. He nudges sheep with it. You know, he fends off things. He does, it's just, a, it's just what he uses. It's just his tool. For us, it, if you, you know, it'd be like a pencil or, a, you know, whatever. I don't know what people use, an axe or a steering wheel if you drive cars or, I don't know, whatever. Uh, chalk if you're a teacher. So he's got this thing in his hand, his staff, and, and God says, why don't you throw it down? And, it turn, you know, it happens. It turns into a snake, and he grabs it. And God uses this staff, this piece of wood, as a, this conduit for his power in Moses' life. That's what Moses had in his hand. He was a shepherd, and God was going to use him to shepherd his people and lead them out. And you know, like, the crazy, amazing things that God does with his staff in his hand. I've seen God use things in me that I never thought were usable. I didn't think it was that great. I was in a village. Uh, we were doing a survey through northern Laos, and it was with uh, some friends of mine. Um, actually, they were just, it was me and then five other Lao people. And I was a little startling. There wasn't a lot of people that looked like me that had been in those places. And uh, most people were a little scared of me at first, but... Um, I found that when you go to a village that's super remote, if you, can, if you can get a baby, if you can hold a baby, people are like, oh, wow, they hold babies, okay. And if you can show, show pictures, they're probably pretty nervous, but if you can show pictures of your family, that usually helped people understand I was human. Um, I asked my friends, like, why am I so scary to people? Like, people literally hide. One grandma actually dropped her apple. She had an apple. She saw me drop her apple. And then she started laughing because I, I guess I'd scared her. I didn't mean to. But I asked my friend, like, why am I so scary? And they go, oh. Well, sometimes they watch Thai movies or other things, and usually ghosts or spirits have your color hair. I'm like, oh, okay. I thought well, maybe it was the eyes. They're like, well, that too. Okay. <laughs> I was like, all right. Um, but it was fun. Once you could kind of like show people you were human, and I'd show people pictures of my family, and I think that really helped. Like, oh, wow, you have family, and that's your wife. And I was standing with this group of, of uh, grandfathers in this Aka village, and that's just a tribal uh, people in northern Laos. And I was showing pictures, and they stopped at this one picture. And they just started talking. And I don't know that language. Even if it was Lao, I wouldn't have been able to keep up. And I was like, what's going on? And my friend who was there, who was Lao, was kind of chuckling a little bit. And then he's like, is this picture real? I'm like, yeah, it's a real picture. And he goes back and talks. And they talk again. And comes back to me. Okay, who's this? I'm like, well, that's my brother. Well, I have a twin brother. And the word for twin in Lao is fafet. And so they kept saying fafet. And I was like, twin, what's the problem here? And this guy I was with, kept, he just thought it was really funny. Um, he said, well, it's a good thing you were born in America. And I was like, what? Um, and super sad story. In that village, they, they, uh, they kill twins when they're born because they really believe that it's an anomaly. Usually in, in very remote parts of uh, at least Laos, when things are anomaly, they don't make sense. It makes people fearful. And so they believe it's something to do with evil. So they believe one is an evil spirit. So they kill both the twins. It had happened actually just a month before we got there. And so I'm up in this 
this thing, and I'm like, whoa, I don't know what to do with this reality, you know, but again, I'm just there. I didn't know being a twin is something God would use in, in northern Laos, but as, the, as we started talking more in this picture, me and my brother, we were surfing. Uh, he was surfing. I was drowning almost. But we were in California, and we are just on the beach. And that was the picture they were all startled about. Like, how can there be two of you? What's happening here? And so we talked it through. And, and I remember finally the guy that was with me, he kept saying, like, look, he's, he's strong. He's alive. He's tall. You know, he's, he's healthy. And his brother is too. And, and it was just like this mind bomb for these grandpas. And so I told him, I was like, well, just tell them. You know, if they have some twins that are born, you know, we, we love kids. My wife, my wife loves babies. That's, you know, I don't know about that. But um, I, just, I just said it in the moment. I said, you know, we have girls. We love girls. We love boys. We don't have boys. And just, just send us your babies if you want, if you have twins that are born. And they kind of seemed to pacify the conversation. They're like, oh, okay, okay. You know, that was kind of like where we ended it. Uh, nobody showed up on my doorstep for the next four years. I was a little nervous, like, man, this could be really exciting. Who knows? Our family might grow. Um, I never planned on being a twin. I don't think it matters that much in life, but maybe God can use that. Something as simple as that. There's a guy named Jay in Delat where I, where I work. He, uh, I taught him freshman Bible. I teach freshmen. I love freshmen. We're kind of on the same intellect. We're all squirrel. I'm squirrely like freshmen. I'm about as mature as freshmen. It's fun. So I'm um, teaching freshman Bible, and Jay was in my class, probably the worst class I've ever had. Him and his buddies were just, just they couldn't focus, they're goofy, they're always laughing, doing stupid stuff. Hard to teach, but I love them. Anyway, fast forward a few years, um, I coached basketball when Jay was on the JV team. Jay is a Korean international student, so it's very Western, you know, our school's pretty, it's American curriculum. Uh, this, this past year, during our spiritual announcement this week, uh, Jay, Jay came down to talk with me after one of the services. And he said, I want to pray with you. And God had put 1 John 1, 9 on my heart. I didn't know what to pray that week. But God had just laid this verse on my heart. And I was like, okay, I'm going to use this verse, Jesus, whenever you need me to. I'll just I'll put it out there. And I said, okay, well, Jay, if we pray, I want, I want you to, let's, let's confess. Which is kind of a hard thing to say sometimes. Hey, let's confess. You know, let's try that with your neighbor. Hey, anything you need to confess today? Um, but I just felt like it was the right thing to do because God had put this verse on my heart. 1 John 1, 9, which says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And uh, so I said, Jay, if you confess your sins, guess what? God cleanses you. He forgives you. He makes you righteous. So Jay started telling me just this story right there. We're down, you know, music's playing. We just had a prayer time. And he said, uh, he said, my, my family is the only family in all of my Korean relatives that are not Christians. We used to make fun of the rest of my family. All of the relatives were like, you guys are crazy. He said, then my mom became a Christian. He goes, and I made fun of my mom. Like, mom, that's so weird. He goes, but then my brother uh, became a Christian. And then my dad, who was in a different country working, became a Christian over there. He goes, I'm the only one in my family that's not a Christian. And I said, I used, to be, I used to make fun of all of them. I had a really hard heart. But God has shown me this week that he wants me to become a Christian. And it's real, and God's true. And I was like, whoa, that's amazing. Now, here's the cool part of it. Uh, I love basketball. I've lived in Korea. Um, I knew Jay because I taught him in Bible because I like teaching Bible. I wasn't, like, pursuing Jay. God just put me in these different spots so that we could identify with each other. My part was this big, you know, that mustard seed faith. I like that idea of this so tiny. It's just like a mustard seed. But that's our part, something tiny. And then God does the big part. He was one working in Jay's heart. I didn't even know he was working in Jay's heart that week. It was awesome. There's another girl, Davina, that I had in freshman Bible. She'd be the one that you'd label like least likely to become a Christian someday, Davina. 
Um, she's kind of cynical. She came from a local Chinese, uh, Chinese local Malay family that was pretty much atheist, I guess. You'd say kind of agnostic. But she didn't really care. She's kind of one of those semi-depressed kids and just sort of checked out. But she would also ask questions, though. I could see this light in her eyes. Like she wanted to know things. When we came to Christmas time, we in class, we're talking about the virgin birth. You know, most of us are like, oh, okay, virgin birth, Gabriel comes. And she raised her hand. And she's like, how? And we're like, I'm like, Davina, what? What are you talking about? What, what doesn't make sense? She's like, how? And I was like, oh, yeah, that is a pretty, pretty incredible concept. Like virgin birth, right? Like there's no man. You have Gabriel. says so the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. You're going to birth to a son. I'm like, yeah, we should be asking questions about that. Thanks, Davina, you know. And it was good for her to see it all in this fresh light of like, she wasn't necessarily being antagonistic. She just had all these questions. I could see, you know, some people just have that charisma. And you just see them and you're like, God puts them on your heart. And you're like, wow, you would make an amazing Christian. And so I tell her that often. Like, Davina, God has plans for your life. God's got plans for you. Over the summer, nothing. Again, I'm not praying for Davina every day. It's not like she's on my, you know, put on my list of prayers, sticking on my wall, pray for Davina every day. It's just every now and then when I think about her. Came back from the summer this year, saw her after class one day. She looked like she was crying. I was like, whoa, what happens? And she just had a tough day. She had gotten real panicky. She's struggling with anxiety. So I said, I'd love to talk to you sometime. So we had lunch the next week. And uh, she talked about how she's dealing with anxiety. She goes, I think God's speaking to me. I'm like, whoa, okay, buckle up. Here we go. What's she going to say? And she said, well, I keep having these dreams. She goes, she goes Mr. Ronsheimer, over, over the summer I had three dreams. And she said, the first one was I was just super panicky. Um, and I actually, in my dream, I was afraid. And, and all of a sudden I just felt Jesus' presence. And then I was fine. I was like, wow, that's cool. And you know, there's another dream very similar to that. And she goes, the third dream, she goes, on my phone, I think for class or something, or a friend, they have to get this Bible app. And she said, every day on my phone, like a verse pops up, you know, verse of the day. And she said, in my dream, I was, I was feeling anxious. She goes, I looked at my phone, and I think it was Isaiah, like 41.10 or something. Something about, I'm going to be with you and give you peace. Okay, that's the verse. So in her dream, this verse pops up on her phone. And she wakes up in the morning, and that verse pops up on her phone. And I was like, wow. It's like, Davina, I think, uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think God's trying to speak to you. Now, my part in that is tiny. Okay, what tools has God given me? I like to teach Bible, I like kids. I don't know. I'm just there, right? Um, and I can relate to people. Again, don't have to be super smart, but God's, I'm, I'm good with people. And so he's, he's giving me this opportunity to relate with Davina. And God's doing all the work. That's the cool part. Okay, so that time and training in Laos. Um, God uses it all. I've got to wrap it up here. So um, I just want to finish with these ideas. I'll just grab a quick drink here. And, uh, and I guess worship team, you can get ready to come, come on up. But I just want to close with these two thoughts for you um, that hopefully you can apply. Where are you? What station are you in? And believe me, it all counts. There's no detours. I had, I had a job in a restaurant. I actually worked in a lot of service industry uh, for a couple of years where I felt lost. Like, maybe God forgot me. I was an adult. I was waiting to go overseas. Man, God used those two years at Hands and Chanhassen, serving food, busting dishes. That was the real deal. That wasn't a detour. God uses it. Where are you? What's your station? Wherever you spend your days and uh, the people you're with, um, 
I want to encourage you to ask God, okay, Father, because we want to be about what our dad is about, right? Dad, what are you doing? Father, what do you see? We want to ask him, Father, what do you see in this situation? When I walk into this place, my home, a store, a school, whatever it is, Father, what do you see that I don't see? What station are you in? Because I, guys, don't hear me say you need to come to Malaysia. No. Actually, God needs people right where you're at. He might move you. If you're open-handed, he'll, he'll take you anywhere. Um, doesn't matter I, where you're at. God will light that station up with his presence if you open it up to him. Say, God, what do you see? What are you doing here, Dad? Um, and then tools. What's in your hands? Again, the, the, the tendency we have is to look at someone else's hand. God says, what's in your hand? We're like, what's that person have? No. God doesn't need you to have what someone else has. He given, he's given you what you have in your hands for your job. Moses is just a shepherd, man. He just said that shepherd staff. Uh, God has given you what he wants you to have. And I, we have this thing, even in the Christian faith, we've kind of institutionalized things so much that we always think we need to take another class, another seminar, hear another sermon, like get better before God will use us. No, God will use us right where we're at with what he's given us. And sometimes the things that we think are mundane and ordinary, man, he'll use it if you just allow him to infuse it with your spirit. Say, God, okay, whatever you want to do with this today, okay, I don't fit in Asia, right? I mean, I don't look the part. I don't speak. I'm like Moses. don't speak very well. I literally am not very good at languages. I'm horrible. Um, I'm an introvert. I'm prone to discouragement. Gosh, that's not a good quality when you're going overseas, man. When you're going to Asia where things don't work. Um, God's not concerned with what we don't have. He can take care of that. He's concerned with what we do have, what he's given us. He'll use it. It's all about Jesus. Let him light up the station you're in. Let him take the tools he's put in your hands. Just ask him. Say, God, I want to hear your voice. I want to see what you see. Start to speak to me. Uh, and he'll do it. Um, it's an adventure. Uh, we're going to close with offering, I guess, and so if the offering people can get ready. And I'm just want to pray for us uh, before the offering, but just to, to thank God for what he's done. My life's been... An adventure, I'd love, I wish I could hear all your stories, I'm sure. The things God has done in our midst is amazing, and he's not done with it. So let me, let me pray for us. Thank you, Father God, for the places you take us. Thank you that there's no place you're not at already. Thank you for doing the work, for finishing the work, accomplishing the work. Give us eyes to see what you want us to see wherever we're at. Use the tools you put in our hands to bring glory to your name as you love people through us. Thank you for this kids' camp that's coming up, the ministries here in Elk River that are going on through each person in this church. Thank you for how you've equipped this body with the tools that you want us to have. And then thank you that you give us your spirit. You give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that you speak. I pray an outpouring of your spirit on this community, Jesus, on these people. Just a fresh outpouring that you would raise up um, a new sense of what you're doing in us and through us. And then we would start to hear your thoughts more and know the direction you're guiding us. Each day in the little things that you would bring people to us. Lord, I pray for those people who, uh, like me, are introverted, maybe a little shy, that you would bring people to them they would be able to speak your words of love, that you would open up conversations of truth by your Holy Spirit, and as you pour out your spirit here on this church, that you would uh, grow us deeper in those times of training. Lord, for those who are in times of waiting, give them patience. Patience through that pain, patience through the 
the uncertainty and um, knowing that you're with them, Jesus. You understand pain. You've been through all that. You've been through betrayal. Give them the certainty that you are accomplishing your purposes even when we wait. We thank you. We praise you. We love you, Jesus. It's all about you in your great name.